Hello, hello. Welcome back to For Opasky, the podcast. I'm your host, Camille Bacon, and I'm joined today by writer Jessica Lynn. I cold emailed Jess back in the summer of 2020 after reading her essay, Criticism is Not Static, and gushed about how much I loved the essay and asked if she would have a conversation with me. And in the essay, she draws on Barbara Smith's essay towards a Black feminist criticism and writes about how her practice is really invested in, quote, placing care around the practices of Black women artists, their work, their archives, their fullness. I was a mere baby writer when I encountered those words, and they found me at a perfect moment when I was really trying to outline the stakes of my practice and sort of figuring out what exact contributions I wanted to make to the world through my writing. And since then, Jess has been an incredible guide and sister and mentor and friend. And I continue to um, kind of bounce ideas and such off of her, including really trying to outline the why of our respective practices, which is, I think, a forever question for those of us who make things in the world. Um, today, we're going to discuss writing and Missy Elliott and Martinique and a lot of other things, but I'd love to turn it over to you just to introduce yourself a little bit more. Thank you, Camille. I'm really excited to be talking with you today. I feel as though in many ways, all of our conversations could be an episode <laughs> of your wonderful podcast. Yes. Um, I'm Jess, for all of your listeners. And I really appreciate how you introduced me just simply as a writer. Um, labels can feel extremely nebulous, as you know. Mm -hmm. And what you also know is that I increasingly feel less inclined to assign myself the term of art critic, which is not something that um, I would have been hesitant about six or seven years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. However, these days I am feeling as though I'd like to start to rethink about who I am um, as it relates to my quote unquote professional responsibilities mm -hmm. and obligations. And I'm also <laughs> a student again. And so feeling very, um, tender mm -hmm. with my writing practice that in the context of school doesn't look anything like criticism mm -hmm. so writer feels weighted and heavy totally it certainly feels so much more pleasing to me mm -hmm. right now than um the label of art critic which we can get into that. And I'm sure people listening would be like, mm, are you sure? <laughs> However, I think I mostly think I'm sure. Totally. I love that you just brought it there immediately because that was one of my first questions for you is kind of how did you first come to the page? What's feeling urgent in your work right now? Um, and kind of that was a, I thought I was trying to be sly, like a sly way of being like, so Jess, why are we moving away from the label of art critic? What are the kind of complications of that for you? Um, so take it away. Let us know. Thanks for the setup. Um, I'm not someone who has this kind of romantic, idyllic relationship to writing. 
which is to say that I wasn't the person writing novels or short stories as like a seven-year-old or a teenager. I've always been a reader. Mm -hmm. Libraries remain some of my favorite places in the world. And in my senior year of high school, I took a creative writing class, which at the time had been, um, had been told, it had been told to us that that class was the first class coming back to the high school in many, many years, which I can't prove whether or not it's true, but I thought, why not? It was something very different. And in that class, I was writing terrible, <laughs> terrible, <laughs> terrible um, letters and mini essays. Mm -mm. But my teacher, uh, Miss Arellano, I will never forget her. She was so encouraging and really worked hard to make sure everyone felt like they could have a unique relationship to their writing practice. Mm -hmm. And that class taught me something about myself as a thinker and storyteller mm -hmm. and gave me, I think, a sense of encouragement to take a risk. Mm -hmm. Um, to think about a life that might include writing, even if I didn't have all of the details figured out. Mm -hmm. So as a young person then in college in New York City, I felt as though the way to have writing in my life was through journalism. Mm -hmm. I hated the journalism program at my, at my <laughs> college. I felt as though, oh no, this is not capacious enough for me. Of course, I was an idiot as a teenager. I had no idea what was going on. Um, and that program is fantastic. I am sure many people get many things out of it. What I was figuring out for myself then that I didn't have a language for is that there was another tradition of writing that I was curious about. And so normally when I talk about my relationship to the page, I don't necessarily talk about this kind of these early moments and I usually start with this fact which is after leaving you know changing the major doing the admin things um I began to deeply deeply immerse myself um in the work of Bell Hooks who was introduced to me by a professor Carly Moore an amazing writer um poet educator who had this class, uh, The Artist as Critic. And in that class, that's how I met on the page, Bell Hooks. And it really transformed the way that I thought about myself, the way that I thought about the stories I could tell about myself and my people. Um, Bell Hooks, as we know now, an ancestor is a Southerner. And I am also a Southerner, although belonging to a different topography, right, along the coast. Art on my mind, that collection of essays illuminated so many, so many new things for me in terms of what it might mean to make this Black South a complicated terrain, make of it a complicated constellation of aesthetic and creative production, which is something I knew even latently, or maybe kind of took it for granted growing up um, in the Black South, but I had never quite seen these negotiations articulated in the way 
that bell hooks articulated them. And that truly is a kind of origin story for my relationship to writing and criticism. I didn't know that that was a thing people did or even wanted to do. And I carry, I still carry that moment with me, but in real time, it led to a complete change and a complete um, reorienting academically, of course, which is what everyone does when you are in these incubators called college. <laughs> um, and subsequently kind of found my way working in art nonprofits in New York City, and then met Taylor Aldridge, our dear friend, who had been sitting with this amazing idea to create a digital publication for Black art critics, and so lovingly invited me into that project in 2014, the project that became Arts.Black. I saw Blacks just, it changed my life and it changed again, you know, another uh, reorientation to the work that I was trying to do. And I think a history of Black writing writ large. I'm curious now that you find yourself in your MFA program, kind of how you're rethinking lineage. You're of course sharing a space that Alice Walker used to frequent um, I know that Black women and Black feminists are perhaps the primary folks that you draw from in terms of method, in terms of form, in terms of all these other questions. And I wonder how you're thinking writing lineage alongside familial lineage, because I know you also spent a decent amount of time in Virginia recently. That's a really lovely and provocative question. I think I should start with the fact that I went back to school because I recognized that there was something else, another reorientation happening for me on the page. I wanted a container and a framework for working those thoughts out. Mm -hmm. I had been reading increasingly about this amazing artist, amazingly Meredith. And trying to map for myself a constellation of Black queer women Southerners. Mm -hmm. That work felt monumental when I first started. It still feels monumental, but I started learning about Amaza and recognized like, oh, there's something here for me, right, as a reader, as a woman whose family is from the South deeply. So as a black queer woman and the thing that was there, the thing that I was seeing couldn't really be um, negotiated within the terms of mainstream criticism. Because what I wanted to say about Amaza was really the things that I wanted to say about myself and the presence of that eye is terrifying. It's extremely terrifying. And also not quite something that I think belonged to the work that I was doing as an art critic. And so telling myself I was ready to apply to MFA programs and attempting to give myself some quiet time to work through that project um, 
is at the heart of the decision. I had spent the majority of the pandemic in my hometown um, in Hampton Roads, Virginia, which is this amazing constellation of cities along the Chesapeake Bay um, at the coast, in the coast of Virginia. I was there before the pandemic, in fact, and just was working through a lot of things, you know, um, trying to really figure out what my relationship to research was going to be around Amaza, talking and writing about a recent breakup that I think had been haunting me at the time. And all of that was converging on the page for me. I think I could have only started this new writing at home, but I certainly needed some different tools, right, to finish it. Um, I don't know that I have all those tools yet, but grad school certainly felt like the best place to kind of sharpen my capacity. And so now I'm at Sarah Lawrence, which yes, is the grounds that the beloved and wonderful Alice Walker once walked. I think too about the late poet Camila Aisha Moon, also a Black queer southerner. And I'm desperately trying to write for myself um, uh, uh, an ode, if you will, to a certain type of uh, Black queer Southern lineage, just one. There can be many lineages, right, that exist simultaneously. But I think I'm trying to kind of write myself into some element of that. I don't know if it will succeed. You know, when you're in a residency or a workshop or a program, you're just in the mess of it all. And I'm looking at the various essays that I hope will comprise what will be a book one day. And I'm like, none of this makes sense. I'm saying the same thing over and over again. And I think that is also a part of the process. Um, but I like the trying and I like the effort and I'm excited about my work again, which is not something I would have said if you had asked me to talk about my work or myself three or four years ago. I had hit a wall and I was deeply, deeply frustrated and bored with myself. <laughs> not, you know, there are structural inequities to be leveled at the field of mainstream criticism and media, but mostly I was tired of myself. And I was like, girl, you have to figure out a different thing. Like, what do you need that you don't currently have that will reignite um, a curiosity? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is less about the day-to-day. -day. Are you writing every day? What are you, are you, how are you working on craft? And I think being curious about yourself to me was about finding or assembling a new kind of intellectual project. The being bored of yourself thing is so real. And I think it's actually very difficult to admit though, when we fall into those periods, into those valleys. Um, Jess also very recently facilitated an amazing residency through MOMIS called um, Because My Metier is Black. And it was kind of structured around Toni Morrison's essay, The Writer Before the Page. And before that residency, Jess, I was so bored with 
myself. And I could not figure out why, like the way I was living was less poetic, the way I was writing was less poetic, the way I was speaking and engaging with friends and the world was less poetic. And it reminds me of that um, part of Uses of the Erotic where she's like, once you feel the erotic, this is Audre Lorde, like once you feel the erotic, you can never go back. Like there's no other option for you. And it feels like I have been able to reach some degree of poeticness in my art criticism, but then it felt like I was tapped out and didn't really believe in where this work had to live because it's so niche. And like the people who I want to be reaching are not necessarily the folks who are like, let me go subscribe to art forum or whatever. And I wonder how this, this notion, which I find really funny, like this idea of getting bored with yourself, how is that connected to being bored of art criticism? And then how is that connected to you now imagining yourself closer to the family of writers than critics? Mm, wow. These are all really tantalizing questions. <laughs> so let me figure out how to start. You know, I think being bored with myself related so much to how I was, was and was not making a living. Mm-hmm. trying as a critic right mm-hmm. um I was freelancing mostly I had been freelancing mostly um for the past almost half a decade and initially taking the leap as a freelancer was riveting you know um arts.black had at the time recently been funded and I think I felt at the time equipped to try this new thing. Mm I was, I had just started reading about Amaza. And so I hadn't yet put my finger on how that research would factor into a larger project. And in that respect, freelancing felt like it does in the beginning, the kind of leap into autonomy, Mm -hmm. a different sense of agency. And I thought, okay, this will be a way for me to quote unquote, make it all of the like kind of whimsical fantasies we have about a writing life. Yep. I think what I realized is that I wasn't working in a way that made financial sense for my life after Mm -hmm. a while. I also felt as though I wasn't receiving and or finding acceptance of pitches for stories that felt exciting to me, for stories that felt um, complex, both conceptually and would give me a new thing to try as a writer. I was really yearning for some some something that would kind of force me to engage with craft on a deeper level like what are the things I know I can do well as a writer and then this other bucket of things that I can't do well at all and like how do I bridge that gap and I thought working um as a critic would slowly start to close the gap and it didn't um I think I have felt increasingly compelled to talk about how disappointing that was, right? To, to watch 
um, what I felt at the time was certain things slip away from me. And we don't really like to admit that, right? That we get disappointed, that you do want certain bylines, that you do feel like you want a sense of stability. And it sucks when it doesn't come to you. At the same time, I can also understand um, how those absences now open new portals and doors. But in the moment, you just feel like, oh, I'm not as good as X, Y, Z, or there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And I think even more emphatically, the art world and like art publishing loves to be able to kind of use um, or name drop Black cultural production and traditions mm-hmm. of Black textual production mm-hmm. without actually having to engage Black writers. Yep. Because I think Black critics exist differently than Black artists do. Like you can't mm-hmm. make money off of Black critics. No. Like we aren't selling a thing. We don't exist in the market in the same way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I felt like publications at a certain point were only interested in talking to me um, when it felt as if the pressure was against Mm -hmm. them, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that feeling also sucked because- Because you're being instrumentalized. Yeah, (laughs) you're being instrumentalized. And then on the, on the, on the, the work that you want to do on the stories that could actually be transformative, that you might actually have something to say about, Mm -hmm. you aren't getting those assignments, or at least I wasn't getting those assignments. Mm -hmm. Um, So I say that because I think that that, that part of my story is a very real part of my story. Absolutely. Um, That I was becoming, I was beginning to feel very lonely. Mm-hmm. as a Black woman art critic who worked work in and primarily wrote about what we call capital S, capital mm-hmm. A, fine arts, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was feeling very lonely. Mm-hmm. And so as that feeling of loneliness was creeping up, I was pouring myself um, into this research around Amaza and becoming just mesmerized by this woman born in the late 19th century into, you know, becomes an educator born in rural Virginia and kind of ultimately lives a very um, stable middle-class life, um, but lives her life with her partner, Dr. Edna Mead Colson. And Amaza is from a rural, more rural part of the state than I am, but I never thought that, I was like, oh, this person who kind of had a similar trajectory as I did um, and was kind of interested in some of the same things that I am now, Mm -hmm. why haven't I heard about her? And thankfully, there have been two scholars um, that I know of, uh, Mario Gooden and Dr. Jacqueline Taylor, who had already laid such fantastic groundwork around the biographical matters of her life and her work as an artist and her architecture. And so by the time I meet Amaza, I feel as though I can try to have a conversation about Black queer womanhood, um, thanks to that groundwork that had already been laid. And I think the kind of loneliness that was pushing me out of art criticism and into this more um, pleasurable uh, research effort, that, that started to feel good, you know? And it reminded me of writers like Alice Walker, um, another Black Southerner who is so deeply um, 
connected to the process of like mapping the black South. And I can't say that, I don't know, like I have no idea where this work will lead me. And maybe it sounds so grandiose to believe that I too am mapping something in that way, you know, um, at the scale of Walker, for example, who kind of illuminates and gives back to a world, Zora Neale Hurston, right? Mm -hmm. Who herself is someone who mapped so many different parts of the Black South. Um, but that those two elements kind of feeling increasingly lonely within a world of art criticism and also being in, being embraced by and embracing the legacy of this amazing Black queer woman, amazingly Meredith, I just, I just kind of started thinking, well, maybe I should just be on this side anyway. You know, maybe I should just keep my head down and like figure that out. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't even know if that's answering the question for you right now, but mm -hmm. th those things were happening simultaneously. And I think it is, it or it was something again that I didn't have language for when it was happening, but now talking to you and processing it all, I can see how, um, how the movement was actually quite fluid in a way, you mm -hmm. know, a kind Absolutely. of exiting of one style of working into mm -hmm. a very different way of working and writing for me. It makes me think about um, this quote that you know I'm absolutely obsessed with, but it comes from um, a poem by Nikki Finney called The Making of Paper, and it's a tribute to Tony Cade Bambara, and in it, um, Nikki Finney talks about her sweet black writing life mm -hmm. and your note about how, you know, the market can capitalize off black artists all day. They have a literal thing that they're selling, but that's not how it works for black critics. And that calls to mind just the ways that the loneliness you're describing is not incidental at all. And it's a direct product of the kind of lack of clarity around why art criticism is so important. And we answer that question for ourselves all the time, but like, you know, it immortalizes the work. It gives it context, yeah, contextual kind of padding so that people who return to it kind of understand the space from which it's coming. Um, and so I wonder, as you have kind of altered really the stakes for yourself, I would say, like the stakes, also your way of working, like you mentioned, what is your sweet black writing life looking like right now? Like what are the practices that the work demands away from the page that allow you to kind of come back with a degree of like enchantment and delight and excitement about what you're working on? Because I think that's really part of what fends off the loneliness is being quite simply excited about what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think we talked, you talked earlier about Momus and it's interesting to think about that opportunity to facilitate and build a cohort of Black writers together in relationship to a Tony Kate Bambara who was so invested in organizing and stabilizing these like alternative and I want to say informal, but they were very formal in their reach, right? But these alternative spaces for learning and exchange and thinking and questioning 
and hoping and resisting um, outside of academic terrain. Momus gave me the chance to say, oh yes, we are all asking questions that might not fit into the apparatus of art criticism as it has been articulated to us. But like, that's okay because we're after something else anyway. And so I have really appreciated the opportunity to work in that way. Um, I've had the chance to do this with another friend, Yania Lee, who is kind of a model for what it looks like when you think of a sweet writing life, a way to engage Black writers um, beyond our immediate, um, or beyond the immediate need to like publish a thing or, or what have you. And so I'm interested in those type of spaces, like alternative learning spaces, um, alternative models for exchange. And I would like to be able, I would like to be fortunate enough to continue to do that as they arise. But I think too, you know, I realized working as a critic, I did not have a routine for myself. And so, quite simply getting back into the routine of like dedicated reading time, dedicated writing time, dedicated revision time has been very sweet. <laughs> you know, I, I love that that word gets to be kind of live with this conversation because it's hard and also it's sweet. And I needed that, you know, um, I certainly needed the opportunity to organize my research, to organize the questions that I was asking um, in a way that like freelance life just doesn't leave room for, you know, you're like going to see this thing or you're like interviewing this person and sometimes things get dropped. And by the end of the day, you file the story and you're like, okay, I just want to sleep now. <laughs> um, I needed to reorganize myself. Um, and and I, I think, you know, if there's one thing about being back in school, you, you, you gotta stay organized, <laughs> you gotta stay organized. Um, that has been really important to me, even if it feels like a minor, um, a minor change. I was, I was just running ragged so, so much as a freelancer, <laughs> you know, like it, it ain't cute. It is not cute, mm -hmm. as you know. Um, and so the time to be able to say, to be able to say this time slot on my calendar, it's like just for reading mm -hmm. so is excellent. Um, and I, I think one thing that's important for me and one thing that I want to say out loud is that my relationship to Black artists and Black cultural production, I think at a base level hasn't changed, right? That like Black artists still constitute a large part of my world, right? Mm -hmm. That like, I am so in love with what many of these artists offer to us through their work. And I find myself in collaboration with many of them, which is also not necessarily a thing that critics, quotes, air quotes, can do. Mm -hmm. But I think what I have allowed myself space for is the position to say 
maybe I'm not the person writing a review, right? Like, sure, and we understand the functions of reviews, but I actually want to be a person who is helping you find language for the question that you wanna ask, or the person who is saying, well, what about this, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Or the person who is saying, let me just get the oral history on record. Mm -hmm. That to me offers another level of profundity that mm -hmm. my criticism could never actually reach because yeah. it isn't designed to do that. Mm -hmm. And when I think about um, that essay that I wrote, that essay that connected us, were I to go back to it today, I probably might scramble some things around, you know, because maybe what we're after isn't a thing that looks anything like criticism. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and, you know, I, I think Barbara Smith, that essay lays such an important framework for Black writers like us. And also, I think it gives us an opportunity to say, well, what else, what is the language, what is the new language? Mm -hmm. Or like, what are the new terms? Mm -hmm. And maybe the new terms don't have anything to do with a criticism. Mm -hmm. like maybe it's something else. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it feels like what you're describing is the act of like thinking alongside artists and I, as someone who's still kind of making the shift out of the quote art critic bag, um, just feel like the relationship is almost like less contentious, less suspicious with artists. If you're not the one who in most mainstream terms is telling people whether the show is good or bad, basically, you know, versus the like, can I build discourse around this thing? Can I, as you say so beautifully, place care around this thing? Um, can we talk about Missy Elliott? Why are you obsessed with Missy Elliott? Tell me. Of course. First of all, <laughs> Missy is the hometown hero. There we go. Um, you know, if you follow Missy online or anywhere online, she will tell you she is a 757 girl mm -hmm. up and through. I too am a 757 <laughs> girl, you know? Um something is indeed in the water there we and go we love that <laughs> um, we are also hyper aware of ecological catastrophe and crisis mm -hmm. that bears upon all of us mm -hmm. um, all of us who have called um a place near the water home mm -hmm. i think missy is so emblematic of the dynamicism of black southern life mm -hmm. the ability to constantly kind of like reshape, renegotiate, re-articulate, um, renew mm. what we think of when we think of like black creative expansiveness. I mean, if that is, if she is not an example of that, then I don't know what is. And mm. the way that Missy understands herself and lineage too, mm -hmm. as someone who completely changed hip-hop as a genre mm -hmm. and also as a writer a producer mm -hmm. a vocalist right she she's a light and mm -hmm. she's a model and I I think that you know I 
we all have very big feelings probably about the places where we come from mm -hmm. um, and the places that were our first homes. But I love how Missy, no matter where she is in the world, never loses that origin point, you know? Um, and when I see her so excited about the place where we are from, it reminds me that like, I get to be excited about that place too. Mm -hmm. That we're home, like it's Missy Elliott's home. It's Ella Fitzgerald's first home, right? Um, it's the place where Ella Baker was born. Wow. Um, you know, I, know I just, I, I feel really privileged to move or I hope move in a way that speaks to the robustness of Black Southern life and all of its complexity and all of its topographical diversity, um, sonic diversity. That, that feels special to me. And I love that it feels special to Missy too. Even if she might use different words to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, no, I love but it. Yeah, I, you know, if you listen to this, Missy, I love you too. <laughs> Let's do something together. There we go. You guys, you can write lyrics for her maybe. I can't write nobody's lyrics. But I would love to be there in the room. There we I go. I would love to offer feedback. There we go. You could be the workshop director. Exactly. Exactly. I'll bring us all together. There we go. So speaking of places near the water that we call home, Jess recently visited my grandparents in Martinique. Tell us, because also for anyone who's listening, Jess went several months ago and we somehow have just not talked about it. We have been very, very disciplined and obedient about not discussing. So this is the first time that I'm hearing about Jess's journey to my absolute favorite place. So tell me about Martinique. Tell me everything. Wow. I mean, first of all, Camille, <laughs> people need to know what an amazing connector and cartographer you are, right? That you have a very unique ability to understand folks in relation to one another mm. and, and how they should be in relation to one another. So I'm just really grateful for that invitation you extended to me. Martinique is such an amazing place. And I don't mean that in like the infantile sense, right? Like I understand my home and yeah. it's, dynamicism mm -hmm. folks if they don't know I think should be aware but like Martinique offers to the world to a to a black world something mm -hmm. very important right mm -hmm. um and I think broadly you can extend that to black Caribbean mm -hmm. that black people owe so much to black Caribbean thinkers black Caribbean artists mm -hmm. um and so for me it it was it was sweet it was pleasurable to be in this place where Parlette Nardal was thinking about herself and her work and uh kind of anti-colonial anti-imperial politics and certainly she's someone um you know I was reading her while I was there and kind of had I was like all oh, right but She's, this is all very mixed up in a certain relationship to Christianity, for example. Yeah. And but I don't necessarily share. Yes. yes. Um, but she is not unlike, say, an Amazalie Meredith who yeah. 
existed in, in, in a kind of middle-class sensibility. And that's important to talk about. Yes. Um, but then you have uh, like a, a giant, like Edward Luson, you know, like, and I mean, I mean, Cesaire, like you're thinking about all these black folks who come from this place and have quite literally transformed the world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like that, it, that, that is profound. And because I am a water sign, everything yep. is profound to there me we at go. all times. Yes. <laughs> Walking the ground, like some of the same places that these folks walked mm-hmm. in politics mm-hmm. is extremely humbling and also a real honor. And I think as a Black Southerner, the relationships that I have to Black folks from the Caribbean mm. is extremely important, right? Mm. That like, there's so many sensibilities that flare up for me whenever I find myself in the Caribbean amongst mm-hmm. Black folks in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't quite, it's like a feeling you have, you know? Um, we know the historical reasons for why the sensibilities exist. And yet sometimes words just aren't big enough to capture them all. Yep. So on an intellectual level, so, so much was flaring off for me. But I think on a heart level, mm-hmm. being with your family, Camille, your grandmother and grandfather, who were so patient with me, <laughs> I don't speak a lick of French. You all heard how I pronounced these beautiful names that <laughs> should be probably pronounced a different way. You were close. Was, <laughs> I'm, you were close. I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> Um, they were so caring and thoughtful and they reminded me so much of my own elders mm-hmm. and to be welcomed by them, a person they had never met, <laughs> you know, be, simply because you said like, this is a person who matters to me. Um, that was really moving. I spent I was there for what, eight days, I think? Seven yeah. Days. Every morning I started at the water, at the ocean for like four hours. Mm-hmm. And I was working on like an essay last night actually about being at a beach back home. And in that essay, I talk about in one moment, kind of just like dunking myself in the water and coming back up and like doing it repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about how I did that a lot in Martinique mm-hmm. um, and how important it was to just start my days that way, mm-hmm. that I had a lot to release and I didn't even realize it. Yeah. Um, a lot that I won't go into that you know, right, mm-hmm. as it pertains to like family and heart and all of this stuff, but having the opportunity to kind of release into the water and then mm-hmm. be filled back up again by the water. Mm-hmm was a blessing, you know? And I I feel as if that is the way I would always like to enter into a place, you know, <laughs> with the like loving tenderness of an elder who can say, watch out for this, watch out for that. Yep. You know, with a submersion in like the ocean no disrespect to all my freshwater friends, no. but there's nothing oh, like an ocean. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, um, like with salt water spilling from my mouth, like all of those yeah. things actually feel really important 
to how I want to take care of like my personhood. Mm-hmm. And so that that trip came at such an important time for me. And I can't wait to go back, you know? I, 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 it also is not lost on me, like making such a trip in a moment, like the moment we're living in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I acknowledge the incredible amount of privilege it was um, to do that. But it really, I needed it. Mm-hmm. I needed it. You know, I really, really needed it. I, I was like crying every day, you know, like I was crying every day and it felt good. And at one point, um, my computer died and I had forgotten, I forgot to bring, um, my converter. So I was just reading and getting tanned, (laughs) you know, like, um, favorite activities. It was, it was a real treat and I didn't explore all of the islands. So there are still parts further north than where your family is that I didn't get to go to, but I can't wait to go back. hundred percent. And you can go back anytime. I think it's the kind of island that finds you exactly when you need it. That, of course, hasn't necessarily been my experience because I've been going for my entire life. But I remember you sending me an image at the beach and I was like oh yeah totally like learn to swim there like it was just Mm -hmm. really cool Mm -hmm. the um kind of just two realms of my life that I care so deeply about one being family and one being friends co-conspirators and people who really inspire me like those Venn diagrams starting to overlap felt so good and I want to like pause on this idea about salt water quickly because as you were talking I think I answered a question for myself that I've been asking for many, many years, which is like, why does going in salt water, specifically in Martinique, always feel like it brings me more levity than swimming um, in Lake Michigan, which is also, I live in Chicago, so also a body of water that I grew up next to. And part of it, of course, is the presence of salt and like salt being this thing that cleanses, but also nourishes this thing that like can dissolve into this weightless entity, but also if you remove the water from it, it has this weight to it. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, last time we spoke on the phone, we like started to get into it and then we were like, ah, 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 like let's pause, let's pause, like let's save it so we can discuss on the podcast. But you said something so profound, which was that you felt like you had permission to leave something in the water. Mm -hmm. And I think, that also the profundity of that for me really sits in the fact that Martinique is not a place that you enter casually, especially as people who are preoccupied with the things we're preoccupied with. Like this entire substack is named after an essay by Edouard Glissant. Like these thinkers are people who have changed the world because they've shaped us who can then carry forward their philosophies And so I don't think it's a place where you're like la-di-da-di-da, like frolicking around. Like there is a kind of import and a kind of way that the island demands that you engage with it um, that I think maybe is lost on some people, but I really don't think it was lost on you. And so with all that in mind, you know, we enter this, this space of Martinique as a place that has given us so much. So then how does the permission to then leave even more in this place and like 
allow it to do even more work for you. I'm curious about what that felt like when that moment of being like, oh, I can actually release into this water came. Um, I'm really curious to hear you talk about that. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. You know, when I landed and was going through the customs line, I can't remember if I told you this, but the um, the staff member at the line, before, before I spoke, before any uh, border documents were revealed, they said, welcome home. And wow. <laughs> I looked at them and I said, uh, you know, I, I was be- beginning to speak and they heard my um, American accent and they said, well, it's okay. You're still home anyway. Uh, there we and go. that was, I've never stopped thinking about that because it was completely unexpected. And I certainly wasn't there for work. You know, like I wasn't there for work. I, I was a tourist. I was visiting. Mm-hmm. Um, what I needed to leave though in the water and what I was thinking about too, as I was working on this essay last night, is how I came into Martinique just like I had come home those years ago that I kind of tread in the essay. Um, I came home with a lot of stress. Mm. So I think I went there with a lot of sadness too. Mm. And I had all of these what ifs circulating in my head mm-hmm. about a variety of things um, as it related to family and health and love. And every morning when I woke up and walked from your grandparents' home to the beach, every single morning, I just let a little more of those concerns mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. And I think what I received back is a different sense of ease. And that is not to say that I came back or left Martinique with answers, but I did leave with ease. You know, like I needed to be able to remind myself that like, you're gonna be okay, Jessica. You know, like the people in your family who are managing health crises, like they're gonna be okay your heart is going to be okay, you know, Um, people love you, and they care about you, and they want you to be well, and I came into that trip so exhausted, so scared, like, really frightened, Um, a little, a little, like, apprehensive if I was doing anything the right way as a writer, as a student, as like a relative and family member, as a partner. And I kind of was given permission to like drop some of those hesitancies. And that, that, that feeling can really like shake, shake you up a bit. I mean, it can jolt you because you literally feel like <laughs> you like literally begin to feel lighter. Um, and I didn't know that I would be hit with that feeling so immediately. 
and with such gravitas you know like we all say like I'm going you know like I hope that I can come back you know with my like my shoulders a little loose but when it really happens it's a very different experience um and that's what happened to me that night almost three or four years ago when I was at Buckrow Beach the beach that I grew up going to you know like at night under a full moon um the very same thing happened and so when we talk about salt water and kind of its healing properties it isn't just the somatic like it does do something for heart and soul as well and I certainly needed it in June when I was going um to Martinique I get emotional hearing you talk about it. I'm like, ugh. ugh. I'm emotional right now. I can't wait. We can't see, but I'm just, tears were about to come. Literally the infinite wells of tears collide on this podcast episode. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, another thing you said, and this is my last question for you, is about kind of... um, the way my grandmother said goodbye to you. Oh, yes. And I'm wondering if you can describe that for folks who are listening, because I think, you know, as folks who have Black grandmas, it's a very, very particular kind of love and care. Um, And she just has a way of sending people off like that. So I would Mm -hmm. love to hear you tell this story. Yeah, so on my last day, I left on a Sunday and every morning, you know, I would walk from the guest apartment upstairs to the grandparents' main main house and either say, I'm going to the water, I'm going to get lunch or I was going out. And my very elementary French. (laughs) And what I appreciate about your grandmother And this is a thing that I probably would do and will do too, is that she just spoke to me, you know, she just spoke to me. She doesn't speak English. And also it was a way of saying, you will figure this French out. Mm -hmm. You'll be fine. Yep. Um, And that is the way that anyone learns a language and certainly the way I've learned other languages. And so, you know, we would have those interactions. I would figure it out, come back, whatever. And so on Sunday, I was, coming up to say goodbye, I had my suitcases and I had um, a denim jacket on. I'm also a very tall person and your grandmother is not (laughs) short, but she's shorter than me. Yes, definitely. (laughs) And so I had given your grandfather a hug and, you know, a kiss goodbye. And then I went in to give your grandmother a hug. And before she hugged me, she... (laughs) grabbed (laughs) she like touched my left shoulder and like started to fix the collar of my jacket Mm -hmm. and like when she had fixed the collar smoothed the jacket down (laughs) and then hugged me and kissed me which if you have black grandma grandmas aunties elders when they fix you up before you go out into the world that is love because it's a choice to not let you go out here looking like a ragamuffin it is a choice (laughs) to say I care enough about you 
that you will not be in this airport line and this supermarket and school at the office mm-hmm. with your collar messed up. Mm-hmm. You do not do that. And your your grandmother essentially said as much to me, we do not do that. Yes. I'm going to make sure <laughs> you're ready so to go, to step no. out into the world. A hundred percent. And people who have not been biological kin are kin nonetheless, mm-hmm. right? Um, regardless of where their origin story might begin or how they came into our world. I think that that is a beautiful thing about the Black South, um, that we aren't perfect by any means, but like, I think there's always an effort to try to like love in a way that's really rigorous. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, (laughs) not perfect, right? That there are a lot of, critiques that I might make about certain elements of the place where I am from mm-hmm. and the place where my people are from and how some of those things have actually landed on me, right? Mm-hmm. But I certainly think that one of the many things I have learned as a Southerner and one of the many things that I try to carry out into the world is like, you will always find rest in my home. Like you will always find some food I may not be the one cooking it because I do not enjoy cooking Mm -hmm. but like you will always find food in my home right because there was always food in my grandmother's home Mm -hmm. both of them you know you will always find like something cool to drink (laughs) you know like you will always be able to take your time and sit and visit and that is the way that I experienced your grandmother Mm -hmm. who prepared me lunch every day while I was there, whether I asked for it or not, you know, who made sure that I had water, Mm -hmm. um, who made sure that like, I knew where I was going. And if it was late and I hadn't come back, found a way to get in touch with your mother who would get in touch with me Mm -hmm. just to make sure I was safe. Mm -hmm. Um, That's love. And it's certainly my experience of love growing up. Um, And I'm sure that you also have your own structural critiques that you might levy, you know, um, against a place that you know very well too, but it doesn't mean that that critique and annoyance or irritation, if you will, lives in this other place and like the respect and care and love you have for it lives in this other place. Like they exist at the same time. And we're like constantly trying to make sense of them. Mm-hmm. But the, that was a long way of saying that, yes, there are so many ways that like the love that I experienced from your grandparents reminded me of all the things that I knew about the place where I come from too. And that I think is the beauty of diaspora, right? That like, even if some things are a little different, you know, here or there or wherever, mostly we know one another and we see one another. Um, and I think that's really special and, you know, like, I, yeah, I, I always want to be a person in the world who like regards that, that, those tentacles as, Mm -hmm. as such. A hundred percent. Jess, thank you so much for doing this. This was my honor, Camille. You are fantastic. And I hope People who don't already know that, I hope they wise up <laughs> to the game. 
and people who know that I hope they continue to celebrate you thank you so much and thank you all for listening I will see you again in a couple of weeks be well